You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. Biblical studies can't seem to figure out what to do with those Greeks. One voice warns against Platonizing influences on Jewish Christian theology, and then another one calls for suspicion of the so-called Hellenization thesis. Then, just as one figures out what to do with that tension, one remembers that Platonists and Stoics and Epicureans are all Greek thinkers in some sense, and yet the three could scarcely disagree with each other more. Just when we despair that this confusion will never abate in the New Testament, Christoph Marxies arrives with glad news. The confusion extends centuries after the New Testament and on into late antiquity. Dr. Marxies' recent book, God's Body, Jewish, Pagan, and Christian Images of God, draws some of the contours of that ongoing dispute, especially when it comes to the question of the embodiment or the incorporeality of God, and Christian Humanist Profiles is glad to welcome him to the show. Thank you for coming aboard, Christoph. It's a great pleasure to be in the show. (laughs) Excellent, excellent. This book's opening chapter offers a helpful reminder for those of us who learned some historicism in graduate school, namely that concepts like body and embodiment are always historical and always under negotiation. As you start your story, not with the New Testament, but with high medieval theology, Maimonides, Thomas Aquinas, and so on, uh, by the 12th century, what do educated philosophers generally agree on when it comes to God and bodies? Perhaps I should uh, first explain why a book on antiquity starts with high medieval times. By all means. I should start with high medieval times in my book to explain why the pluralism of different positions on our question uh, of antiquity and especially late antiquity was reduced. And uh, the two thinkers, I'm starting with Thomas of Aquinas and Maimonides, uh, they are restricting or reducing pluralism to one clear-cut position. Both were Platonists and both brought up the idea that only ridiculous, simple-minded people um, thinking about a body of God and both to a certain extent, changed the state of uh, the debate or st- um, changed the, um, how to say, changed what is allowed to say for an ordinary learned Christian or Jewish thinker. Uh, before Thomas of Aquinas and Maimonides, there were people discussing still these, let's so say, stoic position that in a certain sense it's allowed to speak of God's body. After Thomas and after Maimonides, there was a kind of broad consensus avoid strictly to speak um, of a body of God because that's ridiculous, simple-minded, anthropomorphic. So these are the two key figures leading to our widespread idea, let's uh, go away from these nonsense ideas about God. Very good. So by the 12th century, it's not really a question among the learned. But when you backtrack to antiquity, 
Your book makes an interesting historical claim, namely that body, which in modern discourse usually signifies biological composition, flesh, bones, muscles, so on and so forth. Instead, body in antiquity means mainly a node of communication when it comes to ancient discourse. So in those terms, in terms of a, a, a place where communication happens, what does it mean for God in Stoic terms to be embodied and for God in Platonic terms to be disembodied? Um, one should have in mind that Stoics weren't idiots. Stoics were convinced that there is nothing without a material substratum. Let's so say that there is nothing in the world where is not a kind of founding material reality. So um, today, uh, in a talk with people from the sciences, it's quite clear that the notion that a feeling, something which we will relate uh, to the mind, the, the feeling of love to someone, definitely is to a certain extent related to a material substratum. Uh, let's say um, it's a question of chemistry um, and not only a question of emotion and feeling. So um, that's the Stoic idea. The Platonic idea is, <clears throat> yes, that there is a kind of material basis or foundation, but there is such a strict um, categorical difference between materiality and spiritual reality that uh, the uh, material reality is neglectable and will be to a certain extent disappear when we are dying or whatever, and then spiritual uh, reality can exist without such a material substratum or uh, a foundation or basis. And that's the clear-cut difference between the Stoics and uh, the Platonic philosophers. Stoics are convinced no spiritual reality without material basis. So body um, is for a Stoic, um, let's say the place, uh, the, um, the, the space where these spiritual realities emotions, uh, feelings, thoughts are coming together and are uh, realized in an undestroyable um, and uh, in a quite narrow form of unity. And the Platonists are convinced that this is a um, how to say it, it's a, f a kind of dangerous um, unity, the unity of completely different entities, a spiritual high reality and a quite um, low difficult, dangerous material reality. Um, and in so far, body is for a uh, platonic thinker, uh, something which is to a certain extent uh, neglectable. And these are two ways of looking to um, not only humankind, but also to, to the whole world, to, to whole reality. And I think both have, um, how one should say, but both have certain 
arguments in favor of. Uh, <laughs> we hope when dying that our spiritual uh, reality will survive the material death. And on the other um, side, um, of the coin, you have the impression um, that there is a very close um, near relation between materiality and emotion. If uh, I'm tired, my emotions are tired too. If I'm uh, freshly uh, awakened from sleep, then, then I'm more happy than before. So that there is a, a deep um, d d personal experience Experience which leads us to the stoic view of the body. So communication is more or less a stoic way of looking to, um, for uh, platonic thinkers, it's always a hierarchized communication. The teacher is speaking and the simple-minded pupil, the body has to follow. And if a body is not willing to follow a body will be punished indeed I, I, that's a, a good part of uh, Plato's Republic is precisely on how to keep those appetites under check with the help of the, the thume however you translate that uh, so I, I wanted to bring that up because you know what we think of as body in the 21st century is is something that is up for grabs so to speak in antiquity Another binary that often we take for granted in the 21st century is, is that between body and spirit. Whatever is body is not spirit, and whatever is spirit is not body. And yet, when you discuss uh, Christianity's early disputes uh, concerning divine body, Origen, you know, who is a kind of center of gravity for this book's investigation, in one of his polemics warns that some will say that God has a bo body precisely because... First John says God is spirit, or is the Gospel of John? It could be both. At any rate, to modern ears, that seems like it's got things backwards. If God is spirit, then God is not body. Origen says, because God is spirit, some people assume that he is body. So talk for a moment about what that word spirit means in antiquity. Uh, you know, what's the range of connotations that it has if it's not the simple opposite of body? Um, that's depending of the background of people using this. Uh, if one um, would be a um, person trained in stoic circles, one would always think that um, spirit has something to do with, the, the Greek word is pneuma, so it has something to do with a very extremely light materiality. And a stoic would be interested in the question, why on earth we both can communicate? And someone speaking the ugly German English and someone trained in the mother tongue of uh, American English could talk to each other. And then a stoic would think about um, there is a certain um, a combination of material and spiritual reality, which is in a certain way flowing in between us and in, uh, flowing in between Europe and the U.S. And a, a Platonist thinker, um, someone trained in Platonic circles would always think uh, spirit is completely away from these bodily questions. Also, someone not 
trained in the English language and someone not trained in the German language could uh, talk to each other if the uh, spirit, the pneuma is able to uh, to be free, to, to uh, set free, um, made free of all these material questions of language and speaking and hearing and is able to uh, leave behind all these bodily, earthly restrictions. So the question, what's spirit, is closely related. Perhaps um, I remember when when I was trained in the, in the German academic system, we had in theology and also in classics lots of people deeply coined by Martin Heidegger. And uh, th this is a specific way to look to things and you got always the impression every term used uh, and pneuma spirit is a, a wonderful example for this is deeply coined by the philosophical framework of someone. So for Certain people, the Platonists, uh, there, there is definitely a binary uh, opposition between um, body and spirit. Stoics would think um, it's a kind of how to explain network. And in a network, all things are depending of each other, all things are linked, and uh, there, there are no strictly binary oppositions in such network conceptions. And my interest as a contemporary of the 21st century is that I have the impression today's description of the body are more or less more um, comparable, not identical to Stoic descriptions and th this idea of network wh when asking people today uh, how brain is functioning, then the neurologists often declare like a network, there is no center in the brain but there are certain hierarchized and in, in a certain sense ordered network relations and brain is functioning like a network and then I feel as historian of antiquity um, and in classics trained, uh, remembered of this uh, stoic conceptions. Very good. And, and, you know, for our listeners, I mean, you know, the, what I would want to highlight there is that, you know, it's not that there is a single uh, notion of spirit in antiquity that you've learned wrong your whole life. It's that <laughs> the notion that you've learned is one possible notion yes. of spirit. And then there are also com other competing notions of spirit out there to be, uh, you know, out there on the on the field of battle with them. Yeah, I think what I should explain um, uh, to, to uh, those people listening um, is um, th that um, in the German um, system, the, the question is always, when talking about Hellenization of antiquity, f uh, in favor of or against Plato. But that's the wrong question. We are, by our school training, always um, uh, bound to, um, trained to look to Plato's dialogues. We have read in school Plato's dialogues because there are lots of German and English translations. The Stoic uh, idea 
um, was not part of my curriculum in school. And I have to confess, also in my university training, um, I realized late that there is a lot of Stoic teaching. I was trained in Plato's dialogues. I was trained in uh, Neoplatonist thinking, Aristotle, uh, the, the, the Greek uh, poetry and, and uh, wonderful poets. But um, we have only... Um, fragments of the uh, Stoic thinkers and commentaries appeared late. So my interest is not to, to uh, Plato bashing, so to say, uh, far away from this, but to recolor our image of antiquity. It's not only a black and white picture for or against Plato, but it's a, a colored, multicolored picture. And the question, what about the spirit, is such a question. It's a multicolored picture. Very good. And and to commend this book, it does visit not only philosophical texts, but also Homer's epics. Uh, it visits, you know, sculpture. Um, yeah. And, you know, what comes out in that investigation is that, you know, as we've kind of noted, there's not a single view of divinity, just as like, just as there is no single view of spirit. Uh, but there's an ongoing disagreement. So before we get to our, our extended conversation about Jewish and Christian conversations about the divine and the body, um, you know, what kinds of ideas do you find embedded, if you will, in sculpture, narrative, other kinds of artistic works in antiquity? My interest was to show uh, in the uh, all days world of a pagan living in antiquity, sculptures uh, played a major role in, in, in the life. Um, remember the, the wonderful temple of Zeus uh, in Olympia uh, or uh, in, in Athens, the wonderful statue. And uh, what I try to show is those people were not... Uh, as we often as contemporary uh, people uh, are thinking, uh, simple-minded people in the sense that they thought uh, that's the image of God. So is God. Zeus has a wonderful long uh, brown hair um, around his head and uh, is uh, full of muscles. And No, no. no. Um, people were quite convinced that this is a kind of, how to say, um, it's a kind of image of, it's a kind of something, um, something as a portrait of. They were quite convinced that God had a body, but it, it's impossible to present this spiritual form of body, that heavenly form of body, that light specific materiality form of body with, with art. So the difference in all similarity, that's perhaps the best way to describe uh, the portrait of Zeus in a temple um, is something where similarity, there is a certain relation of similarity between heavenly Zeus and earthly image of Zeus uh, as a sculpture, but this similarity is interwoven with difference. There is a clear-cut, strict difference and a similarity. And to show that, that people were aware of this, 
the philosophers could explain, like I did before, a similarity um, interwoven uh, with difference. Uh, but the the feeling of people not trained in philosophy was also these holes um, ha had a certain form of image, uh, an expression of human devotion to the uh, gods, but not a one-to-one -one copy of how God really is. And that form of, um, how to say, all-day feeling of um, something which only philosophers could explain, which is expressed in certain Greek terms in Homer, in poetry, which is expressed in inscriptions of not the simple-minded people, of rich people, but not of uh, uh, f trained philosophers. That's something one should know. Um, the polemics of biblical texts, there are the silly Egyptians thinking that God is a wooden statue who could be such an uh, ignorant person to think that a wooden image could be a certain divine. No, Greeks were f familiar and aware that a wooden statue, extremely precious, not only wood but also ivory and other uh, extremely precious materials, could to a certain extent, represent, that's perhaps a nice term, it's a representation of God, and it's quite clear, even my um, uh, high school was a portrait of the German uh, president at the wall, it's quite clear, it's the German president in a certain sense, but on the other side, it's definitely not the German president. You will be punished when destroying uh, the picture, the image at the wall, but you are not destroying the president, but you're trying to destroy the... So, so that there is, in, in a lot of not philosophical text genres, like laws, like descriptions, the portrait of the president of state, the feeling, um, the, the unthematized feeling of um, that is the president of state, uh, the sculpture or statue, and that isn't the president of uh, state. <laughs> right, that makes a good deal of sense. And and what's interesting here, of course, is that you know when we talk about uh, the the complexity of relationships between statuary and literary representation and philosophical text, we certainly have difference there. But um, you know, one of the again commendable things about this book is that it brings complication and complexity uh, even to bodies of text that you know we tend to think of as. Uh, fairly uniform. So, for instance, if I had to guess which groups made a move to thinking about souls as corporeal, the last group that I would have guessed would be the Neoplatonists. But once again, uh, you know, highlighting the oddities of history, uh, this book points to a moment in the story of Neoplatonism as a philosophical school where you start seeing talk of the soul as embodied. So, Talk to our listeners a little bit about what happens between Porphyry and Iamblichus <laughs> on the questions of the soul. That's perhaps one of the most surprising parts of the book, um, especially for experts. I remember how surprised I was when first reading those texts. I was trained, probably as you and most of the listeners of this show, that 
Platonists were absolutely convinced soul is free from materiality. Soul is something uh, extremely uh, opposite and uh, uh, the the strict clear-cut opposite of the body. But we all have learned that uh, in late antiquity, a certain element of Stoicism was incorporated in Neoplatonism. What I thought... uh, what I have learned is that this um, incorporation of Stoic philosophy in Neoplatonic philosophy in late antiquity um, was um, restricted to questions of logic, the, the um, Stoic logical training, the Stoic logical uh, distinction between certain types of sentences and how you are allowed to combine them to have a a valid argument and those things. But um, the the incorporation of Stoic ideas to Neoplatonism was um, larger and more emphasized than we thought. And one example is that the later Neoplatonists were convinced that there is a heavenly material reality of the body. And that's extremely surprising because there are, so to say, disclaimers uh, it's a heavenly reality. This heavenly reality is in no way related to our earthly reality. Don't mix the earthly embodiment of the soul with the heavenly body of soul. But these are all repetitions of Stoic arguments. And the idea that, that the Platonists uh, took over the idea that um, – the soul as spiritual entity should have a material foundation, basis, substratum. Uh, that's taking up one of the basic Stoic arguments. Uh, it's um, often expressed in form of uh, uh, um, a kind of narrative that, that there is a body, soul is leaving the body, and then they are talking about the question, what about the left body in heaven? And you got the impression, yes, that, that that's um, to a certain extent the, the attempt to express this idea in the form of a myth. But uh, we have to remember, uh, for Plato, the highest or the most valuable form of expressing philosophical thoughts is the myth, the myth of the cave in the uh, Politeia, in the um, Republic, um, so that the embodiment of soul, the heavenly embodiment that soul um, in principle, has a heavenly body, is leaving the heavenly body for the uh, earthly existence and then coming back to her specific body. That's to a certain extent a myth. And so you get the impression that they took over Stoic ideas but Platonized them, not only in the form to tell a myth, but also in, in the content, you got the impression it's 
certain stoic elements uh, in the neoplatonic idea. So we, we have a little bit to revisit to, to the experts that was known. There are uh, enough of uh, wonderful uh, articles and monographs on this soul in later neoplatonism. But for us, which we are not um, professional neoplatonist uh, or neoplatonism researchers, we have to realize um, reception of Stoicism in Neoplatonism in antiquity is not restricted to mathematics, uh, astronomy, logic, but also in the uh, principles, in the question of principles of uh, metaphysics, um, Stoic elements were incorporated, and that's surprising. And again, uh, this is a book against binary options, so not the Stoics and the Platonists, but uh, Stoic elements in Neoplatonism. There is always a third next to the uh, first and second. Very good. And I I do want to, again, commend this book to our listeners. It is a book full of complications of the divisions that, you know, so many of us were taught as simple. And it's interesting, when the book turns to Jewish mysticism and questions of body within that tradition, uh, as the the long chapter on, you know, Jewish text begins, uh, you warn, uh, quoting uh, Shmuel Sanmel, uh, against... Parallelomania, which I, th- I think is a wonderful neologism, when you examine Jewish texts, since so much of your project involves tracing common grounds that rabbinic and Christian and philosophical texts share, and really, I mean, the fact that they share those common grounds for much longer than people tend to expect, uh, why, why should we heed this warning against parallelomania when it comes to rabbinic texts? Um, first, we have to remember what is meant by this uh, wonderful term, parallelomania. I have difficulties to pronounce it correctly in the English way, parallelomania. <laughs> so what is the original meaning of this difficult-to-pronounce term? Uh, the original meaning is related to, uh, I hope also to our um, um, listeners familiar familiar work. Uh, The um, German um, parish pastor, Billerbeck, uh, collected a collection, rabbinic parallels to the New Testament. And that's a work where lots of German translations of rabbinical texts were arranged in the order of New Testament um, verses and chapters. And those were taken out of the context of rabbinical works and seen uh, from uh, the viewpoint, is there anything comparable to the New Testament? And the problem, um, I I think the the, um, term parallelomania uh, is facing is that we are not dealing with the uh, with a whole text, with a whole Jewish text, but always asking the question, do we have 10 parallels to uh, John 1, 2? 
Um, and that's a problem. We have to excuse these uh, authors of the uh, late 19th and early 20th century. That was the style in which um, uh, in the classics and also in theology and religious studies, people were trained in the apparatus of your critical edition. You have to give a lot of parallels and the king uh, of uh, uh, philology is who has the largest number of such parallels. My interest is not to, um, how to say, to, to move away um, and, and to separate Judaism and Christianity, but to ask the question, let's look for a text or a difficult corpus, and Jewish mystical uh, texts are extremely difficult texts. There, there is no fixed um, textus receptus. There, there is no fixed um, uh, leading tradition. There, there is a plurality of texts you have in a synopsis to arrange them. And so the, the difference to those ideas, uh, 20 rabbinic parallels to uh, Romans one one um, and uh, our approach uh, today is we are looking first for the inner history textual history and meaning of a certain text that means here the Hakalot corpus of Jewish mystical texts and then asking the question is perhaps a Byzantine Jewish text uh, which was produced near the border of the Roman Empire, of the Byzantine Empire, to a certain extent related to certain discussions in Byzantine Christianity on the relation of the father and the son. That's something different than in um, uh, in the critical edition of Origin to put in um, seven rabbinical texts or in, in the uh, before-mentioned uh, collection of the German parish uh, pastor Billerbeck and uh, Hermann Leberecht Struck from Berlin who uh, never ever wrote any line of the book but is mentioned in the title. Um, uh, in, in those books um, there is no possibility really to identify in which place at which uh, part of the critical edition. So Parallels, yes, but no uh, mania to identify those parallels, but clear-cut, um, uh, philologically-based uh, analysis of texts. Very good, very good. Well, you mentioned the uh, the macroform uh, Hekalot, and some of the book's closest examinations regard a microform within that macroform uh, that you label as sheer coma. So, first of all, what are microforms and macroforms? And then within that, what narrative and intellectual moves does Shiur Kuma make that establish it as a true counter-maneuver to the widespread acceptance of God's disembodiment? Um, now we have uh, to look to extremely difficult Jewish texts from medieval manuscripts um, taken and as I said before, uh, in contrary to, let's say, a dialogue of Plato or, let's say, the epistle uh, to the Romans um, of Paul, there is no fixed textual tradition, but uh, how to explain um, 
every person writing um, and copying such a text was allowed to change the arrangement of pieces and um, to um, not only to change the arrangement of pieces, but to add certain things and to cut certain things. And today it's impossible to establish in the traditional way a stemma um, where the um, manuscripts are brought in a certain family tradition and, and family tree uh, ordered way of arrangement. We have to put them in columns next to each other. And when having this extremely complicated synopsis with certain columns, the question is how to describe that, what looks to every young student completely chaotic. And one idea coined by the former Princeton um, scholar of Judaism, Peter Schaefer uh, from Germany, now back in, in Berlin, Peter Schaefer is to distinguish between macro forms and micro forms as certain elements of stability and this chaotically moving, um, <laughs> yeah, how, how to say, moving network of texts and, and certain lines and columns. And the idea is that we have certain macro forms and uh, Shior Koma, which is, uh, which one can translate as the measurement of the body of God. These are, for, for our feeling, completely surprising parts of the text. There is said the measurement of the arm of God is four million parasangs, and the difference between his left eyeball and his right eyeball are two million parasangs, and the difference or, or the length between his nose and his knee is such and such parasangs. And uh, most people analyzing the text uh, before I did uh, thought that's nonsense. Um, how to explain? That's giving certain um, numbers only to signalize it's an extremely large uh, 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 size of God's body, which is so extremely large that's by a categorical difference different from our measurements and our uh, sizes of the body. But the, the interesting thing is the, the image behind uh, these measurements and macro form means all those texts in which God's body is described Crime with certain measurements. The interesting thing is that's related to ancient ideas of well proportion, of a well proportioned body. And so when um, trying to, th th there is a lot of um, corruption in the text, but when looking for the best transmission of those numbers, you got the impression God, uh, God has the most uh, or best well-proportioned uh, body one can ever imagine and have. And that's the, the idea of those macro forms. And 
Um, in those macro forums, you have also micro forums. Um, so there are certain stable elements which are in certain texts in the beginning and in certain other texts at the end. But um, that's the, the idea uh, in this um, it's different. The, the, the English term is living literature. Uh, it's not an, an author-based text uh, who was transmitted uh, extremely correctly. No difference between Roman, the Greek text of Romans in the 4th century and then the 6th century except certain mistakes. And there were monks correcting those mistakes. That's an author-based text transmission. And the Jewish mystical texts or living literature were texts are developing and macro form and micro form is an attempt to um, isolate or to identify in those living literature transmissions stable entities. Very good. One of the terms that you used when you were talking about, you know, this this measurement of the body of God is parsong. And I, I thought that your discussion in the book of the linguistic history of that term and then the transformations it undertakes uh, in this microform are, are particularly interesting. So uh, what what is a parsong and what does a parsong become? It, that's a quite interesting detail. When asking those questions, were those Jewish mystics were living and were they uh, produced the texts? You got the impression, obviously, in the Persian Empire. And that's one of the things, after having written the book, I thought I should do something about Judaism, Christianity, and Jewish Christian groups in the Persian Empire. And uh, why uh, we do know that those texts were written in the Persian Empire? Because of certain Persian terms. And parasang um, is a Persian measurement. And, and uh, it, it was obviously used because the, the authors uh, lived in the Persian Empire, were able to um, use the Hebrew language, were able to use the Aramaic language, but their all-day communication when um, going to a shop and asking for a no basket of fruits or whatever, then they used Persian terms for um, measurement, for counting, for numbering. And uh, so we have a clear-cut sign. These are Persian texts. But the interesting thing is, obviously, um, there are uh, there are also Greek terms. The, the wonderful term, uh, the Greek term is metatron and uh, throne, and that means um, together sitting on uh, the throne. And so you got the impression it's a group of people, mystics, whatever this term means, people who have. Uh, a certain access to divine realities or thinking, um, having this access. Th those people were living in 
the Persian Empire using parasangs as a, a term, Persian term, and a lot of other Persian terms, and also Greek terms. So they obviously read Greek literature, were interested in developments in the Byzantine Empire and the Christological discussion of the Christians. So it's a multi-religious and multicultural Persian, Greek, Jewish, Christian, um, and, and it, it would be quite interesting for we, we have only a small number of monographs on this Christianity and Judaism in Persia, and the interesting question, what's in between? What about the context between them? And that was also the, the interesting thing. Jewish mysticism is nothing of people, certain of us probably imagine the mystic as someone completely isolated, living in in no man's land, in nowhere, no, no, uh, living in Persia, interested in Greek literature, uh, interested in Christian discussions, and to a certain extent, thinking about plurality in the unity of God. Very good. Well, we're going to turn to uh, Christian heresiology, the study of heresy, and notions of divine body. And once again, we come back to the stereotype that seems to be, you know, pervasive, I would say, among those who, who profess the incorporeality of God, uh, that, you know, it is only the uneducated and the ignorant uh, who would, you know, claim that God has a body. Origin, in particular, seems to overshoot on this question, attributing, you know, an utter illiteracy to anyone who would confess that. And yet, once again, uh, the book shows that, you know, stoic influences, biblical narratives, all sorts of things makes the dispute between the so-called anthropomorphites and the so-called originists not nearly as simple as perhaps we'd like it to be. So talk for a few moments here about some of the complications that arise in that, you know, 4th and 5th century dispute in Christian circles about God's body. Um, the, the, the perhaps most surprising fact is that um, one of these completely ignorant, illiterate, uh, unlearned Christians thinking of God's body was Tertullian. So that, that, that's, uh, I think, uh, always the, the best argument for that's rhetoric. And uh, until today, uh, we are designating our not enemies, but uh, people who we would like to counter-argue as a little bit uninformed, not reading literature, a little bit simple-minded. So that's rhetoric. And the interesting question is, what's behind rhetoric? And when looking um, behind uh, rhetoric, you, you got the impression um, th that uh, the text of the anthropomorphites, th that's an hostile term, uh, people thinking of God uh, as a human being, no one thought in antiquity uh, perhaps someone, but definitely not the anthropomorphites, um, thinking of God as a human body. But th there is a wonderful sentence by a monk. When the patriarch of Alexandria, Theophilus, suddenly changed his position, he was originally in favor of the Stoic-based position God has a certain kind of material reality, and to a certain extent, then he changed. Then a monk said, now I have problems to imagine something when praying. 
And that's quite interesting. So um, it's on in, in one sense a stoic-based conception, but it's more. It's a certain form of piety, the piety that one cannot pray to a simple idea, uh, to a simple principle, but should have a, a certain, um, as we have when talking um, about biblical narratives about God, um, God devoted, God as a mother loving his creatures, all these things, then we are... Um, coloring, perhaps, uh, so to say, our image of God. And the anthropomorphites um, were convinced that um, for reasons of personal piety, one should not. They they were fully aware that, uh, especially in the Old Testament, the difference between God and his creatures, between God and mankind, is clear-cut. I'm God and not a human being. You are human beings and not me, God. That's uh, in in a lot of texts of the Old Testament, uh, the message and uh, the anthropomorphites weren't against it. But they had the impression that uh, the images used in the Bible for God are not images for nothing, <laughs> a pure, how to say, closing of something which is completely different of the closest or compared to the closest. But they had the impression um, it's, uh, <laughs> and now I'm using stoic terms, it's the unavoidable human language for the uh, material substratum of God, which is completely different from all earthly materiality. But the creator of all materiality has a certain material uh, foundation. And uh, the Platonists were against it. They thought that's against creatio ex nihilo. That's against the creation from nothing. And that, that's not uh, uh, thoroughly thought. And, and so uh, uh, my impression is uh, when looking to the anthropomorphites, you, uh, you can imagine it's not only a philosophic battle between stoic-based and platonizing theology in antiquity. It's also a, a certain a difference in piety. There are people when praying, having a certain image in mind and knowing that this image is far away from divine reality and others who were able to pray without any um, th- there is in Meister Eckhart in, in the German mysticism of uh, medieval times this uh, wonderful Platonizing idea when thinking of God, you have to empty your mind uh, until the moment when nothing is in mind, when the, the idea of God is completely empty. And th- that's the Platonizing position brought to the goal of Platonism empty of any sensitive or um, complete uh, emptiness of the image of God. And the Stoic idea, there is an enlightened form of um, 
an image of God possible um, and uh, looking to a Reformed Church versus a Roman Catholic or Lutheran Church, there are images, and in the other church uh, there are no images. These are probably two types of human piety which are still existing today. Oh, certainly, and well before Meister Eckhart. I mean, you have the figure that you talk about in this book, Evagrius, uh, yeah. who I found interesting because alongside the syllogisms and the refutations that, you know, sometimes we associate with these disputes in uh, antique theology and medieval theology, uh, Evagrius uh, incorporates his convictions that God is non-embodied into a regimen of disciplined prayer. So how did theological proposition and and piety or ritual practice inform each other in the work of Evagrius? It's wonderful that we we are now discussing Evagrius because um, uh, Evagrius, um, the anthropomorphites are arguing on the basis of a, a living religious form of piety or, or, or of uh, a, a, a of practicing prayer, but also Evagrius. And uh, Evagrius um, offers us a strategy to, um, a, a wonderful platonic strategy to pray and to leave behind all senses, all um, images of the senses and to avoid completely the, the real ascetic is the person doing nothing doing nothing um, which harms other people, which harms my own soul, which harms uh, the, the only thing allowed to do is to um, make the, the body disappear, and uh, he is convinced that prayer is uh, a form of coming nearer to God, which is bodiless, and so the, the prayer should be uh, a, not a carnal prayer, but a prayer of taking away all senses, and that's for an ascetic, a, a clear-cut strategy to avoid uh, this idea, oh, when the liturgy of hours will come to an end, I'm so hungry, I would like to drink something. And uh, all these um, um, images and, and uh, all these interests of the senses or uh, these plagues of the senses, Evagrius, not only... It's not only a philosophical text, but it's it's a training program. You have to read these texts, and at the end of the text, when following Evagrius, you will reach uh, this. Uh, and, and so, to, to be honest, I have always the impression it's a um, professor's way of thinking. There is someone else bringing me uh, the food and the drinking so I can develop thesis about uh, senseless uh, uh, prayer uh, because someone else is taking care of my food and drinking. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I want to talk about one more uh, constellation of, of complications, uh, and that is with the uh, teaching that I learned when I took church history to call docetism, uh, but which your book calls illusionist teaching, and I like that translation rather than the transliteration. 
the big point that I took away from this section is that the label, whichever way we translate it or transliterate it into English, encompasses such a range of opposing teaching that it should give us pause whenever we use any kind of heresy labels too glibly. So what sorts of things does the term doketai encompass when anti-heresy texts engage with that term? One of my principles in teaching history of ancient Christianity is always to retranslate terms which we are familiar with. Um, the the uh, term Gnosticism, for example, I'm always trying to translate these terms um, and tr- um, I, I'm, I'm trying to use um, uh, new German or English translations, um, verbal translations. And um, uh, the, the term Docetism is so familiar. We are talking about docetists and and uh, I was familiar with the term from my classroom teaching as a young student and the idea was that there is this new learned uh, Hellenized form of Christianity and there are those dead and uh, Jewish Christians and those dead and Jewish Christians were simple minded and uh, they had this um, very simple idea that that, uh, Jesus was only um, uh, dokezin he was to to use the the Greek word he was not really um, a a human person but uh, he, he was but uh, by, by illusion of uh, certain people, uh, uh, only a human person. And um, when uh, calling them illusionists, um, the, the German expression, uh, that's such a nice expression. That should be the uh, only term w- we are mentioning uh, now in the German, the Anscheinleute, the illusionists people. And and then um, every reader of the book, every um, person listening to, to our show will realize, oh, that's a quite unfriendly expression. Who uh, would like to be called, for example, in, in the corona crisis now as an illusionist? No, we all would like to be uh, realistic people. Um, and, and so um, th- that's a kind of trigger be fully aware that's a hostile term, and this hostile term is not um, completely away from uh, truth and reality. Those people were convinced that um, the, the relation between the heavenly incarnated person and earthly reality is um, not a a, a complete identity. There was a large discussion in antiquity uh, in between Christian theologians when Jesus was eating. Was he really eating? Or was he only um, uh, presenting the illusion that he was eating? Why it was of interest whether Jesus was eating or not eating? Because 
we need to eat uh, to support bodily functions. And the impression was Jesus was, uh, the, the Greek impression is a prosdeis, uh, someone who needed nothing. That's the, the Greek definition of God, someone who needed nothing. So the question was, if God um, is one of these uh, <laughs> entities uh, who need nothing, um, who needs nothing, um, then how one can imagine that he um, <laughs> um, if eat and uh, drunk uh, to, to support bodily functions. And the interesting thing is when, when looking to um, the discussion in antiquity, we have lots of options. He was uh, eating but not using a toilet. He was really eating, um, but um, it, not using what he um, consumed. Um, it was somewhere, but not used for a certain purpose. And my interest was to take away these traditional designations to open um, our eyes for Oh, it's different, and the boundaries between heresy and orthodoxy are thin <laughs> and fuzzy. Fuzzy borders is perhaps a nice um, English term uh, to describe the 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 uh, be, between the orthodox position. Um, the the uh, human person was eating and the divine wasn't eating and the docetist's position, he was uh, only um, imagining um, or one, one could have the illusion that he was eating. Um, that's a, a, a fuzzy border between these two positions and there are certain positions in between. Very good. Well, in the book's conclusion, you bring this line of questioning that, you know, until this point has focused pretty exclusively on the first 10 centuries, give or, give or take, of rabbinic and Christian thought. Uh, you bring it to bear on Islam and on Latter-day Saints traditions or Mormon traditions. I'm going to make our listeners go and get the book to read that part. But I do want to ask you a question. You do say that although the Platonizing move to make God incorporeal does solve certain philosophical questions. You say that to remove body from the story of God loses something in terms of those rich revealed traditions. So as we run up on time here, what gets lost when God's nature loses body? Um, the, the, I, I think one of the um, crucial and wonderful traditions of the Jewish Christian Bible is that God created uh, mankind, uh, human, humans according his image and likeness. And I think if we restrict the, this image relation between God and a uh, human person only to the mind, only to the brain, then um, we are cutting away from the relation between God and uh, his creatures, something we all love, we all need, which brings us so many pleasures, um, the body. Um, brain, mind, and body have the problems. We know this uh, in, in our days with, with the virus and the corona crisis. But 
um, to restrict the relation between a, a, a human person and God only to mind and brain, I think is one-sided and takes away something which is part of our, our life and should be also part of our relation to God. That, that's the simple um, message of the book. Um, we are related to God as um, a full human person and not only as half part of us. That would be, uh, so to say a little bit ironically, a German professor's idea that only my wonderful mind is the specific organ in which uh, and with which I'm related to God. Very good. <laughs> I've been at the wheel for most of this conversation, so in the spirit of hospitality, I want you to have the last word. What do you want our listeners thinking about the history of theological dispute, tensions between myth and philosophy, the divine body, or anything else as we head for the door? I think the the wonderful um, thing in doing history, and so history of theology, of Christianity and Judaism, is to realize that there, there is a big difference between the past and us, contemporary times. But suddenly you realize, um, I have a lot of friends uh, in the sciences, and uh, they are talking to me on the question, what's mind and brain, and how the relation between mind and brain and body is. And suddenly I realize, oh, there in my uh, field of antiquity positions, which are uh, able um, to 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 brought back and, and into uh, our discussions because certain one-sided positions uh, can be um, are only part uh, of the picture. The picture is multicolored, and so my last words are an invitation to look to the Christian past because there are often positions which are perhaps nearer to us than than other positions we are familiar with, and it's such a large field of unexpected, unresearched, interesting texts and positions. And uh, I can confess, um, a whole lifetime uh, is not enough, but worth uh, to do research. And uh, um, there are wonderful books, uh, especially uh, English books in the last years, which uh, show the enormous uh, rich world of ancient Christianity, Judaism in uh, antiquity and late antiquity, a cordial invitation to study. Uh, it brings pleasure and uh, uh, it, it allows one to talk in a new way also to critiques of religion and uh, to people interested in contemporary questions. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Well, Christoph Marxis, thank you for coming on Christian Humanist Profiles. Yes, a great pleasure and uh, all the best to our uh, listeners. <laughs> Very good. Thank you, listeners, for downloading and for listening in. The book is God's Body, Jewish, Christian, and Pagan Images of God from Baylor University Press. Christian Humanist Profiles is part of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. Our audio editor is Britt Stack. And I'm Nathan Gilmore saying, go in grace, go in peace, serve the Lord.